Julie, I don't know, for the past, what's it been, six months now? It just seems like you can't count on any market to do anything what the experts say it's going to do or what you might expect to do. And I can remember during similar times back in 2008 when we had increased market volatility, I began to think that everything I ever learned about financial planning might be wrong, right? So we think about these things like, the 4% rule, for example, or the rule of 70. Well, we know the rule of 72 works, but, you know, the 4% rule, which talks about, you know, how much our clients should expect to withdraw. It seems like clients have that fixed in their head, no matter what is going on in the markets. And, you know, I guess when things get a little bit crazy, I start to wonder whether all those rules of thumb that we had are still applicable. I'm right there with you. It feels like my crystal ball is getting murkier by the day. And I think some of these learnings or even habits that have been formed, it might be time to hit the pause button and just go back and reassess. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm educating myself anew every single day, it seems. Which is when recently, uh, Julie, when we met up with Christine Benz at Morningstar, uh, I was really intrigued by learning about some work that they had begun just a couple of years ago looking at some of these rules, in particular, the 4% rule that we've all kind of accepted as, as financial gospel and questioning whether it is still applicable in ways that many people think it automatically applies. So uh, why don't you share, Julie, a little bit with, uh, with everyone listening about who our guest is today, Christine Benz from Morningstar. Absolutely. Christine is Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar and Senior Columnist for Morningstar.com. In that role, she focuses on retirement and portfolio planning for individual investors. She also co-hosts a podcast for Morningstar called The Long View, which features in-depth interviews with thought leaders in investing in personal finance. She's a frequent public speaker and is widely quoted in the media, including The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Barron's, CNBC, and PBS. And in 2021, Barron's named her as one of the 10 most influential women in wealth management. We're very lucky to have her with us today. Let's listen in on the conversation we recently had with Christine. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. Welcome, Christine, to the Human Centric Investing Podcast. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here with both of you. Christine, you know, when I joined the financial planning industry oh, 35 years ago now, uh, the 4% rule was kind of a I mean, it was like written in stone. It was, if you remembered one thing or two things, it was the rule of 72 and the 4% rule. And yet I know you and your colleagues at Morningstar have done a fair amount of work over the past couple of years about whether the 4% rule is still applicable. And so uh, for folks like me who have had it kind of burned into our memory, is the 4% rule still a rule? How do you view it? 
I view it as a useful starting point. I often mentally reference some research that Fidelity did several years ago where they asked individual investors how much they thought they could withdraw from their portfolios in retirement. And there was a fairly high percentage of those individuals saying 10% they thought was a safe withdrawal amount. So people need to use something as a gauge of the viability of what they've managed to save and how much they can reasonably withdraw. But the 4% guideline that we have all had burned into our brains over the past few decades was developed by William Bengen. And it's based on backward looking historic data where Bangin said, well, if someone came into retirement and encountered Armageddon, encountered just the worst possible convergence of events, bad equity returns, bad bond returns, high inflation, what would have been the highest amount that he or she could have withdrawn on a balanced portfolio over a 30-year time horizon. And he focused on that period in the late 1960s, early 70s as sort of the worst period that one could have retired into, where you had exactly that convergence of a bear market in 73, 74, uh, high interest rates, which pummeled bond prices and runaway inflation during that time for much of the 1970s and even into the early 1980s a little bit. So he focused on that and determined that on that balanced portfolio, if someone wanted their funds to last, they would need to take out 4%. Our research attempts to kind of look at current yields as well as equity valuations with an eye toward determining if we're kind of looking into the future and thinking about where we are today, what would be a safe amount to take out. So when we did our research in the end of uh, 2022 based on September 30th, 2022 data regarding yields and our team's estimation of equity valuations, we converged pretty close to 4%. So 3.8% was our recommended starting point, a hair below 4%. But we also modeled out all sorts of different withdrawal strategies, variable or dynamic withdrawal strategies. And we found a lot of power in those where if people can be a little bit willing to adjust, uh, specifically if they're willing to take their spending down a little bit, if the market is not performing well, that redounds to the benefit of being able to take a higher starting withdrawal amount. It's interesting, Christine, when you share some of the framework, what was there an event or a story or something specific that inspired you to really dig into this? You know, I put this in the bucket of sort of what got us here today isn't going to be what gets us to there tomorrow. Could you share with us sort of where this where this began and, and how you started peeling back the layers on the 4% rule? Right. Uh, it's a great question. And I would say it goes back to some discussions that my colleagues and I were having in 2021, where we were looking at the fact that bond yields were very, very low. So we knew that the raw materials for a big component of retirees' portfolios weren't that great. Um, and so we wanted to take a forward-looking view for people attempting to 
determine what would be a safe withdrawal amount. And we wanted to specifically drill into some of these variable or dynamic strategies. A lot of the great research that's been done by others in the withdrawal rate space, so people like Wade Fow, Michael Kitsis, our former colleague at Morningstar, David Blanchett, much of that research points to the value of being variable, as, as I said before. But there are trade-offs associated with that variability. And I think it does depend very much on the retirees' circumstances. So more affluent retirees can more, metal, more readily, in, in many instances, make those adjustments to their spending where you know the difference might be they had four vacations planned and you're telling them that they should probably only take three bi big vacations. Maybe not a big deal there, but a bigger deal if um, the market doesn't perform well and you're telling someone, well, last year you lived on $60,000. You pulled 60 from your portfolio. This year we think you should just take 40. And so we wanted to examine some of the volatility that accompanies uh, the dynamic strategies, dynamic withdrawal strategies, the, the cash flow volatility, the buffeting around, um, as well as some of the trade-offs associated with residual values. So we know that oftentimes the 4% guideline or sort of a fixed real withdrawal system leaves people with significant sums of money at the end of their lives that may or may not be what they want. And some of the variable or dynamic strategies actually get you spending in good market environments too, have you spending a little bit more. And the net effect of that is that you're consuming more of that portfolio. In many instances, there's less of the portfolio left over at the end of that 30-year uh, period. You know, Christine, when you mentioned the 10% withdrawal rate that some, it, it took me back to actual clients that I worked with years ago, good friends of ours uh, who retired and had heard that as long as they kept their withdrawals less than 10%, they should be set for life. He was probably 58 years old at the time. And three years later, their portfolio is worth about two thirds of what it started at. And they came to me saying, what do we do now? <laughs> right. And uh, right. so I think as a, as a rule, I think what I hear you saying is still applicable with some flexibility, but a question for you, thinking about the changing regimes that we've had over the past year or two in equity returns, fixed income rates, you know, even today, the Fed is still mired in the question of how far for how long, so on and so forth. Um, do you, how far back did your historic data go? Is it a year or two that you've done this look at the 4% and, and do you have any experience with what changed one year to another. Right. It's such an important question. And so we do use starting yields as a gauge of what sort of fixed income return assumption we make. So the good news is, is that even though it has caused a little bit of a dislocation in the stock and bond markets that we've seen rising interest rates, it makes everything so much easier from the standpoint of retirement spending if we have higher safe yields come online. When you think back to when we first did our research in 2021, we had ultra low safe yields. And that meant that when interest rates went up, bond investors just had no margin for error. There, there was no cushion for those price losses that they experienced in their bonds. Now that we have much higher safe yields today and, and 
as you said, John, the, the Fed isn't necessarily done, but we do have higher safe yields. And that does make uh, the safe withdrawal rate higher than it was when we did our research in 2021. Our, our assumption and our return expectation led us to a 3.3% starting withdrawal rate back in 2021. It's, it was 3.8% at the end of 2022. So um, higher fixed income yields make everything easier from the standpoint of, of retirement planning. They also embellish annuity payouts as well. Um, so it's uh, new retirees have a lot more going for them than did retirees who, who were hanging it up just, just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And that's something we haven't had to think about for the past 20 years, right? Because interest rate rates were on almost a one-way trip straight down to the seller, right? That's right. And the wild card in all of this, of course, is inflation. That uh, with higher inflation, even though safer yields are much, much better today, we do have higher inflation. And that is an argument for not overdoing very safe investments because you do need that long-term return potential. You need that shot at outrunning inflation and that's what you have with higher risk investments. So when we looked at uh, the optimal asset allocation, the optimal stock bond mix that would deliver the highest possible withdrawal rate, interestingly, it's not the 90% equity portfolio or the 80% equity portfolio. It's the balanced portfolio that gets it done and, and leads to the higher safe withdrawal amounts. You mentioned spending, Christine, in terms of a lever, obviously, that, that retirees can pull. And it's interesting. I always think about during anyone's life cycle, obviously, there are ebbs and flows or peaks where spending maybe is a little bit higher versus another point. But if we really hone into the life cycle of retirement, I'm confident that in the research that you've done, you've seen where spending you know, has peaks and valleys. If I'm a financial professional having that conversation with my clients that are that are either in, in retirement or maybe it's it's coming up in the near term horizon, are there questions or how to how to dig into that so that I can really hone in on some of those specific ideas, needs versus wants? It's just interesting because I think oftentimes we set a budget, right? We fill out the worksheet and we we come up with this number and then start to apply it at, at, through every single year. Are there ways to hone in on some of those peaks and valleys so that we can kind of really figure out what that percentage withdrawal rate looks like at different periods in that life cycle? Right. It's such an important dimension in all of this is that when we look at the data on retirees at at large, what we see is that there is some variability. And um, this is a pattern that my former colleague, David Blanchett, identified that has been subsequently called the retirement spending smile. And this will probably be something that will resonate with your listeners who have uh, no doubt worked with older adults where in the early years of retirement, the go-go retirement years, there's a lot of pent-up demand. Oftentimes people, they're younger, their health is good. So those tend to be the high spending years of retirement. And then as folks move into their 70s, early 80s, their health may, may still be good, but they may be a little more sedentary to the extent that they're doing 
doing travel. It might be a bit closer to home in the US versus outside the US and so on. So spending definitely trends down in those middle to later retirement years and then trends up later on, coinciding with uninsured healthcare expenses, certainly if someone encounters long-term long-term care need later in life, that would necessitate a higher spending. So I do think that advisors working with their clients should be thinking about uh, such a spending pattern, but also talk it through with their clients. They're to the extent that someone does want to model in kind of that go, go, slow, go, no, go sort of pattern, it would potentially allow for higher spending in the early retirement years. And we spent a little bit of time in our research trying to model that in. So higher spending early in, in retirement, lower spending later on. And that does allow for those high, higher early expenditures. Um, I also think advisors can do a lot of good just sitting down with their clients and looking year by year with an eye toward determining, okay, here's when you think you'll need to replace that car, maybe five years from now, or um, your furnace is 15 years old, you think it'll make another make it another 10 years, model in some of those lumpier expenses so that um, it's not a big surprise to the cash flow planning that goes on. That's what I was going to say, Christine, is that it seems like you know, if we look at a 4% rule or we adjust it on an annual basis, those are really the, the regular recurring expenses almost. And even then, there probably ought to be some discussion with clients about if we had to trim back in any given year, because the idea being we don't want to take money when markets are down, uh, where would we look in the spending portfolio to do that? But I think what you said is extremely important. Like sometimes with those lump sum purchases, assuming we don't wait till the car or the furnace is on its last leg, we, we may talk to the client up front to set expectations to say, look, if things are looking up in year two or three, we may accelerate that purchase, right? Because it just makes sense to pull our money out if market expectate, market performance is above our expectations. So I think you know, there's two factors. You you called it lumpy expenditures. I think anticipating what those are, but also thinking about if we had to cut back, where would it be? And I think psychologically having those clients visit that space before we're actually in the position to need to do it is sometimes helpful because then at least we kind of envision our way through it. Exactly. And, you know, another dimension of this is that the client's cash flow sources probably will change over the life cycle as well. So many older adults have gotten the message about the value of delaying Social Security if they possibly can, especially if they think they have longevity on their side or they have a younger spouse. If they've been the primary earner and they have a younger spouse, there can be an enormous benefit in delaying, but that does necessitate higher withdrawals earlier on in retirement from the investment portfolio before that higher social security payday comes online. So factoring in that, how, how cash flow demands on the portfolio may change. And then also there may be 
assets that come in to the portfolio. So a common situation, especially for more affluent households, is perhaps where they've had two homes, uh, maybe the one in the warm climate and the one in the cold weather climate. And then at some point, one of those homes gets sold. Often it's the cold weather home, but um, that is a new asset that's coming into the portfolio. So factoring in life events like that can be really, really valuable valuable. It's not just the spending that needs to change. It may be that the the cash flows from the portfolio will change as well. And I would imagine, Christine, that emotions sometimes are attached to some of these life changes as well when you're thinking about the smile and spending when I love that analogy. So I think that just arms financial professionals with, with additional conversation points to really talk through the pros and the cons. Before we wrap up, any final words of wisdom as it pertains to the 4% rule, if you will, from a financial professional standpoint, is there continuing to engage in conversations with clients about this and think ahead and look forward as opposed to in the rearview mirror, as you've said so aptly? One really important point in all of this, I think, is um, probability of success. So in our research, we modeled in a 90% certainty. So we're assuming that someone's taking sort of that fixed real withdrawal from the portfolio, never wavering, never varying, and that they're targeting that 90% chance of not running out of funds. A lot of um, investors might say, well, I want a 100% chance of success. But the I think the point is, we're not saying to set one withdrawal rate that you have to stick with through the rest of your life. You can look at this and periodically revisit and advisors sh should and, and are doing this work with their clients all the time, where you're looking at, okay, based on what we saw last year in the market, our probability of success has gone down a little bit, or maybe it's gone up a little bit or whatever it might be, that that will vary over time and that's okay. And if you're okay with uh, that probability of success changing a little bit, you should also be okay with varying withdrawals on an ongoing basis. And Christine, as a financial professional, I, I anticipate that uh, Morningstar is gonna continue with this analysis. And if so, uh, when might I start looking for your newest assessment on the 4% rule? Yes, our plan is to revisit this research each year, roughly in the fourth quarter of each calendar year. So we'll be rolling up our sleeves probably um, early fall and getting to work and releasing something around um, kind of November, December period. Thanks for that question, John. Absolutely. Well, we have a few more questions for you, Christine. This is uh, for Julie and I, one of our favorite parts of, of the podcast, because aside from the 4% rule, we get to learn a little bit about you through what we call our lightning round. So okay. if you're up for it, <laughs> Julie and I are going to fire questions at you. We want top of the mind responses. Um, and these aren't going to be nearly as hard as analyzing withdrawal rates uh, across the spectrum. So uh, fairly simple questions, but Julie, if you want to start with Christine and then we'll roll from there. Perfect. Christine, on a scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? Oh gosh. Well, you know, we're all above <laughs> average drivers, right? According to that famous of course. Swedish yes. study. Um, I am a six. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I'm more, uh, 
I would say I'm a balanced person, a lean night owl, but uh, go to bed typically between 1030 and 11 every night. So I'm not able to exercise my night owl tendencies too much. I like that answer, a balanced person. I think that's what I strive to be in life. But Christine, what's the best age? The best age, um, I would say my 40s were pretty happy, kind of a good uh, balance of experience, but still feeling pretty youthful, still feeling like I was in my 20s. Milk chocolate or dark chocolate? Milk chocolate. Um, yeah, I'm not one of those chocolate purists. And recently, have you been reading this stuff about the heavy metal showing up in dark chocolate? Um, I think I did. Yeah. 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 We've been sold a bill so, of goods. Is um, that what you're thinking? Right. <laughs> but yeah, milk. I'm a milk chocolate person. Do you prefer a paper to-do list or a digital one? I keep paper to-do lists. I always have a little notebook with me where I take all of my notes on an ongoing basis and um, sketch out my calendar for the day and kind of do a weekly to-do list as well. But um, I do certainly keep up a, a digital calendar for my work so that people can see you know, when I'm available and so forth. But for my own kind of to-do tracking, I really like a, a paper list. Agreed. Well, thank you, Christine, for allowing us to see the human-centric side of you here today on our podcast. And for those listeners that are interested in hearing more about Christine's thoughts, be sure to view her podcast, The Long View, at Morningstar.com. She also has a host of articles uh, on that website at Morningstar.com as well. And check out her book, 30-Minute Money Solutions, a step-by-step -step guide to managing your finances. Christine, we can't thank you enough for being here today and sharing your wisdom on our Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Julie and John, thank you so much. It's been my great pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human-Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of our featured guests who are not affiliated with Hartford Funds. The views expressed here should not be construed as investment advice. They're based on available information and are subject to change without notice. The information above is intended as general information and is not intended to provide, nor may it be construed as providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. As with all matters of a tax or legal nature, please consult with your tax or legal counsel for advice.